You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Jade, you're awesome. (laughs) My grandson told me to say that. It's a great privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, This fellowship here has been a blessing to so many and uh, certainly to our family. And uh, we're just grateful for what the Lord is doing here. We had a lovely time with Stuart and Bron on Tuesday uh, for coffee. And as we just listened again to how God has been working in your fellowship here, we were greatly encouraged, greatly encouraged. And uh, we thank the Lord for what he's doing here and for the lives he's touching, and for the young people that you have here. I want to tell you, there's many churches who'd give their right arm and more to have this many young people in their fellowship. God has blessed you, and uh, it's wonderful to just participate with you in your fellowship here. This morning, uh, I was thinking about um, what's happening in our family. We're just around the corner from uh, another wedding, and... uh, Weddings are wonderful times, busy times, but I thought I would like to bring us back to something of the great thing that happened when Jesus attended a wedding, because it happened 2,000 years ago, but I want to submit this morning that there are many aspects that took place at that wedding that apply to us in 2016. We're living in tremendous days. We all know that. And we're living in days where it's hard to see light sometimes. And so it's good to reflect on something that Jesus did in a most amazing way. But to kind of set the stage, let me just talk a little bit about John's Gospel because it's in John's Gospel we have the wonderful record of the wedding that Jesus went to. John's Gospel is very different from the other three, as you know. And uh, it's interesting that John is an old man when he writes, he's writing from a perspective of looking back and he sees things that the others didn't see. And it's as though he kind of fills in the filigree uh, of the story of the other three gospels. And he tells us things that we don't know in the other gospels. And under the guidance of the spirit of God, he does it in a very unique way. He builds his gospel around the seven I am statements that Jesus made. And he goes through the seven I am's through the gospel. But he also takes seven miracles that he takes. And the first one is the miracle of the at the wedding. Fascinating that this was his first miracle and yet the other three don't mention it. John gives us little bits of insight that are so helpful and so meaningful. For instance, he tells us that it was a little boy who had the lunch on that day when there were 5,000 fed. The others don't say that, but John looks back and he remembers that little boy. And he says, that was his lunch. He provided for 5,000 people, reminding us that uh, sometimes God so graciously takes just the little that we have and sometimes from children and from young people and he does things and works a miracle to feed a lot of people. And so as John reflects, he sees these things as very, very special. Interestingly enough, the other Gospels call the the miracles that Jesus did, and John says, 
They were signs. They weren't exactly miracles. Oh, they were miracles, all right, but there was something far greater than the miracle. The surface level was a miracle. The deep level was that it was a sign. And so he talks about the signs. It's kind of fascinating. He talks about the water being turned into wine, as we will look at in a moment. And from there, he showed us the great sign of the difference between the law and grace, the law of the water pots that were there just for cleansing to the water that was going to be turned into wine, and it was grace. And he showed us that. He talked about the nobleman's son, and he shows there the sign that it was all about spiritual restoration. Oh, he restored the nobleman's son, but the deeper meaning and the deeper sign was that he was talking about the spiritual restoration. He talked about the healing of the paralytic man, and uh, he was healed. And so we see in that sign uh, the picture of weakness to strength. That was the sign that was embedded in that wonderful miracle. The feeding of the 5,000 shows that Jesus was not only able to satisfy in a very physical way, but he was able to satisfy in a spiritual way. And so the sign was far deeper than what was seen on the surface. He walked on the water and proved that you can move from fear to faith. And that was the deep underlying meaning that he wanted the disciples to grasp that day. And then, of course... He gave sight to the blind man, and in that Jesus shows that he overcomes darkness and brings light. And then the raising of Lazarus, showing that uh, he had the power over death. You know, in recent days I've been asked to speak at several funerals, and uh, I'm always privileged to speak on behalf of the family, or, and it's been a privilege. However, you know, I discovered when I went to the Bible that I couldn't get any help at all from what Jesus said at a funeral because he never spoke at a funeral. He was healing people and everyone he touched, he healed. Isn't that marvelous? And so here, John picks that up and he says, yes, this is the greater component. He was the great healer. And ultimately, we have in the last of those miracles was the resurrection. And so we see in the resurrection, the hope that we have, the hope that is different from every other religion around the world. I've had the privilege of seeing many of those religions, talking about those religions, but I want to tell you something this morning, that it's only the Bible, it's only the Christian faith that talks about hope. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that has hope as a central part of their message. Isn't that amazing? We have hope. And the hope, of course, is of the resurrection of Jesus, that we too will be resurrected. But this morning I would like to look at the wedding and think of some of the wonderful aspects of this wonderful, wonderful sign. I'm going to read to you, if you would like to read along with me, from John chapter 2. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Let me rephrase that verse because it's really not the greatest translation from the Aramaic there. What he was saying was, woman, 
this is not our wedding. We are not responsible for this. Why did you come to me? That's really what he was saying. He said, my hour has not come. The mother, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servant who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Very, very powerful insight that we have here of what actually happened in that incident there at the wedding. One of the things in the Bible that we have is that through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we have many kind of clues and things that are used to illustrate something else. We have water many times to illustrate the spirit, but also purification. We have the oil, which is always a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And these are the ones that we have. Interestingly, wine was always the picture of joy. That was the picture behind wine many, many times throughout Scripture. And so as we have it on that particular day, we have the reality that the wine ran out. We could say it another way. The joy had run out, not just at the physical level, but uh, in the reality of that occasion. But we're living in a world today where we have to say that it's true, the joy has run out. I was in Adelaide not so long ago and I was being driven to the airport and uh, the lady, a very lovely Christian lady was saying to me, she said, you know, frankly, David, she said, the joy's run out for us. We just, it just doesn't seem to be as real as it used to be. The joy has run out. And as we look around our world today, we can say that the joy has run out. It doesn't matter whether you turn on the news to see what's happening in Syria, in the unbelievable cruelty of that, the rising tension between the United States and America, the things that are being done there, which are causing great question marks as to where that relationship may go, the kinds of things that are happening in the U Ukraine, and we could go on with the devastations of things that have happened with natural disasters in the Philippines most recently, a little bit before in the Nepal, and they still haven't got that together. Amazing things that are happening in our world today. And as we look at these things, and as a matter of fact, as we look at the global economics and we read what's going on with the Deutsche Bank in Germany and realize it's hanging on a thread, and it's not so much better for China, as a matter of fact, for those who look at the debt illustration of our world. Our world is living in debt, and it's not a good scene. 
and it's all at a point of collapse. It's amazing to me the number of economists who are talking this way. They don't, they're not Christians, but they just see the whole thing folding up. And then on the other hand, there is another answer. God is putting this world together. He's allowing it. He's getting ready for his son to come back again. And uh, I think it's very exciting. But it doesn't mean to say that there's a lack of joy everywhere we look. There is a lack of joy. And so we need to be reminded that uh, this is the world we live in and this is the world that God knew that we'd be living in. I've lived amongst the Dalit people in India, the people who are so low on the totem pole that they don't even have a class distinction. These people have lived in this cruelty thousands of years alongside of a religion that you would think would be there to help them, but it's only damned them. And you look at other situations and you realize that the joy has run out. I'll never forget the night when my wife and I were living in a little village up there in Papua New Guinea, a very remote village. And uh, in the dark of that night, suddenly we were woken by uh, the, the, uh, a cry from the, one of the houses and uh, there were very thin walls, so we all just lived in little circles, so we heard it. And then pretty soon, antiphonally, around the village, we heard this cry go up. And we learnt the next day that that was the death wail. We'd never heard the death wail before. But the hopelessness of that death wail, the hopelessness of those people, they didn't know the Lord. We weren't able to tell them yet. But we saw there was no joy. And... Uh, Sometimes I kind of cringe when people say, leave those people alone. They're perfectly happy as they are. Don't go and interrupt them. And I know that that's not true. The joy is not there. Sometimes we mistake happiness for joy. But that can be two different things. You can be happy and joyful at that, but you can be joyful and be unhappy. It's amazing how you can go to a funeral of someone who loved the Lord and has served the Lord, and in the midst of grief you can have a joy of knowing that this eternal life is true and they've gone to be with the Lord. That's a joy that's not necessarily happiness, but that's something else. On this day, if you will, we see the picture of the joy running out. Such a pursuit of happiness in our world today, and yet we don't see very much of it. We don't see it lasting, and we don't see much joy. But you and I, as God's people, have the opportunity of entering into that joy, and I'd like to talk about that. But it's amazing how many people are looking for happiness at different levels. A young friend of mine has the privilege of meeting with a bunch of business people in this city, and they're very wealthy business people. He was telling me how he was sitting at the, the table at a, at a board meeting with these businessmen, and the man who was talking was uh, a man that is actually probably has been well known in our city. He's a billionaire. And he was there skiting about being a billionaire, a self-made man. And he had all of this. He was going on and on and on. And finally, my young friend asked a question I thought was only, could have only been from the Lord. He said to him, Alan, I've got a question for you. Do you have any regrets? And that guy just stopped in his track and he started crying. Regrets? Absolutely said, I wished I'd never divorced my first wife. She was a wonderful woman. And she's, he went on 
telling about the things that were happening in his life. He said, I've just learned from the doctor that I have six weeks to live. And he said, I don't believe my children will even come to the funeral. What a situation. Looking for happiness, and it certainly wasn't found in being a billionaire in this city. And so I'm reminded that uh, it's possible to look for happiness and then still not find joy. But here we have an amazing thing happens in the midst of this. Mary goes to Jesus and she says, the wine has run out. And uh, he says, well, it's really not our wedding. But then she gave a sermon, a little sermon, a most wonderful sermon, probably the most wonderful sermon that any lady has ever given. And it only had seven words in it. She said, whatsoever he says to you, do it. What a sermon. And she got it right. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And the most amazing thing happened at that moment because he said to the group of men there, he said, I want you to fill the water pots. They didn't ask for water. They were looking for wine. They had never seen a miracle before. Remember this. This is the first miracle. And yet the authority of Jesus at that moment must have been very, very unique because those men went off to fill the water pots. Amazing. The thing that was so great about that little sermon was that she said to him, whatsoever, whatever he tells you to do. She had never seen him work a miracle before, and yet at this moment she's saying, whatever he says to you, whatever the scope is, whatever the range of it, just do it. And so these men listened, and it was very exclusive, as a matter of fact, because it was a message to say, whatever he says, nothing outside of that, just whatever he says, I want you to do it. And then he said, do it. Very specific. It was kind of a command. Go ahead and do it. And it presupposes that those men were listening carefully. I suggest this morning that this is the heartbeat of what it means to walk in the Spirit. We talk about that. God has given his Spirit to indwell us, but we need to be listening to the Spirit and listening to the things he tells us to do. And sometimes he tells us to do things that are a little bit odd, but sometimes they are the things that are really, really significant as we prove that we were doing what God wants us to do. And I think of this in many, many ways. I, I think of uh, how it was uh, that Cameron Townsend, the man who founded the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and I had the great privilege of knowing him and working alongside of him. When he went down to Mexico to get started the work down there, uh, he, he uh, was able to go into the country so long as he didn't learn a language. Well, he was going to do Bible translation, pretty impossible. And they finally let him go in under a $5,000 bond back in 1934 that he wouldn't learn a language. Pretty hard to do Bible translation if you can't learn a language. But he went in. And while he was in there, he saw that the president of the country was doing something really great for the Indian people, the many languages down there. And he thought to himself, I should write a letter to the president and, uh, and tell him that uh, 
I really appreciate what he's doing for the Indian people. And so uh, not a big thing to do. And he was a nobody. He was under a $5,000 bond. And he picked up his pen and he wrote a letter commending the president and sent it off to the president of Mexico. The president got the letter and he thought to himself, who's this saying something good about me when all America at that time was very upset with Mexico? And the president said, well, I, I, I'm going to go and see who this, I'm going to go and see who this fellow is. So he drove out to the little village and there he found Townsend and they got talking and he liked what Townsend was doing and just building a garden for the people. And Townsend said, you know, Mr. President, I would love to bring young people in here and learn the languages and, and, and reduce them to writing and, and help your people. And he said, Townsend, if you would do that, he said, have you got any? He said, yes. He said, we've got lots. Well, he really didn't, but he knew he had a lot back home that he was going to go and talk to if he could get in. And with that little letter, a relationship started. A relationship started so that we believe that at the end, President Cardenas came to faith because of that. He was a pro-communist, but God let it. Through a letter, something happened. Isn't that amazing? And you never know when God tells you to do something. It's exclusive maybe, but do it and you'll be blessed. I think of other illustrations, and I wish I had time, but one of the things that Townsend decided to do was to write a, a uh, lovely book on the life of the president. And our team said to him, Townsend, we're not here to be writing biographies, we're here to be translating. But he wrote the biography. And when one of our men wanted to start the work in the Philippines, he arrived and discovered that the president had read the book that Townsend had written on the president in Mexico. And he welcomed him with open arms and he said, if you will do here what Townsend did there, you're welcome. <laughs> All through writing a book. He wrote a book which our people didn't really appreciate him doing that. But God used that to open the door. You never know. When God tells you to do something, what's at the other end of it? So be encouraged to be trusting God in the little things. You see, on that day, Jesus was going to work his first miracle. I mean, this could have been the most dramatic thing that could have happened. He could have said, reach me that water skin there, the wine skin there that's empty there, bring it to me. And he could have picked up that wine skin, he could have turned it up and out could have come beautiful, bubbling. Why? That would have been the miracle. But he didn't do that. The fascinating thing was he wanted people to be involved in the miracle. So he says to the, to the men, he says, fill the water pots. Well, those water pots were for the cleansing. You, you came in and you washed your feet with that water. That was, that was part of the, the whole cleansing process. You didn't drink from that. But they went out and they filled the water pots. Well, added up, the Bible's very clear to tell us how many gallons it was. So 120 gallons probably on a hot day and the water's heavy to carry. They carried it in. I love what John says. I remember they filled them to the brim. He did it completely. They were obedient. But it's still water. And then Jesus, at that moment, something very, very amazing. But, you know, filling water pots is hard work. And sometimes the work of the kingdom 
is hard work, very hard work. And as you pray for your missionaries and those who are out there serving out there, it can be very hard work. I remember uh, two of our ladies working out amongst the Usarufa people in Papua New Guinea with the most complicated language. And uh, the lady was a, a doctor of linguistics. She was very, very sharp. But she put a chart on the wall and had all the different forms of the verb to eat. And she had listed 5,000 different forms of the verb or conjugations of the verb to eat. She needed one of those when she came to translate the communion service when Jesus says, take, eat. She had to get the right one. Interesting. Hard work, filling water pots. Remember the language that Ruth and I worked up in Papua New Guinea. You know, if you can go in and you can find the, 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 the phrase, what is this or what is that, you know, you're on your way because you say, what is this, what is that? And that really helps you get started. We didn't know their language, they didn't know ours, and so we looked for that. But it took us long to find out that we had to say, what is this, what is that, 39 different ways. <laughs> that took us quite a time before we could break in to be able to say, but that's the task that missionaries have. But think of those that you represent from this church here. You know, I said that uh, we're the only religion have, that has the word hope. You see, if you don't have hope, you don't have a word for it. And here is a central component of the, of the gospel, and we don't have a word for it in the languages. And one of the things I like to ask missionaries is, how did you get to translate the word hope? Because we've got to find a way. And that can take a long time. It's hard work, filling water pots. And so we need to do that. But it's also true back home here, where we work, at school, university, or wherever we are. Filling water pots can be a long, slow, heavy job. But God wants us to be people who are tenacious and committed to filling the water pots that he gives us to fill. We have a responsibility as Sunday school teachers to fill the water pots. We have the responsibility as parents to fill the water pots. You know, if you don't fill the water pots, there's nothing that can be made into wine. But, you know, in our daily devotions, and I encourage you young parents to have your daily devotions, to be faithful with your daily devotions with your children, teach your children, and sometimes you feel as though it's just water. But keep giving the water to them in your devotions as you work with new believers. Keep filling the water pots because if you fill the water pots, you can't make it into wine, but God can. And so as you fill the lives of those precious children that God has given you, then he can take that water and he can turn it into wine. And that's so very, very important. They obeyed immediately. They obeyed completely. And I think that that's something that we need to be encouraged in as we walk. So draw out some of this and take it to the waiter. Can you imagine what it must have been like? Just imagine that scene where the guy takes a, a dipper of this wonderful water. He doesn't know that anything's happening. He says, take it to the head waiter. What a thing to do. He didn't even know that it wasn't water. And he goes there and he gives it to the, to the, the head waiter and he says, where did you get this wine? And I says, that's not wine, that's just water. We just 
got 120 gallons of it. He said, that's not water, that's the best wine I've ever tasted. He couldn't believe. And he said, how did that happen? He said, I don't know. It was a miracle. Something happened between the water barrel and the head waiter. That's what happens as we fill water pots, and as we share our faith. God takes it and he turns it into wine. When people come to Christ through our testimony and through our witness, we didn't do it. The Lord takes our words, which are water, and he turns them into wine. Isn't that a privilege? We are called to be people who will do that. And this morning, as I, as I think of this, I think of the utter import, importance of obedience. That's the theme of this message, really. We are to be obedient. And as we are obedient, then God works. He works on our obedience and he changes things because we're obedient to what he tells them to do. And so we need to, to do that in little things, in big things. And it's a joy to see God putting things together as we would desire above all else to walk obediently. Jesus said to his disciples some time later, and it was John who records this very powerful passage, he said to his disciples, he who has my commandments and does them, that's the person who loves me. That's a very fascinating uh, equation, as a matter of fact. And that is the equation of life. That's the equation for our walk with God. He who has my commandments, that's what Jesus said, fill the water pots, that's the commandment. He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the man who loves me. And so as we are obedient, the Lord is seen that we love him. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on in that verse and says, and he who loves me, according to the formula, my father will love him and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's what happened that day. They were obedient. They kept his commandment and God manifested himself in turning water into wine. And so for us, we have that great calling to be obedient people. And God does some amazing things as we are obedient, really. And uh, I, I'm encouraged as I look back and realize what happens when we're obedient. I'm also encouraged by the scriptures, which gives another side to this. And uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, we have a very, very fascinating account of Moses, the children of Israel have come out of, uh, uh, out of Egypt and uh, now Moses is ready to die and he gives three sermons. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. And the first, in the first sermon, he tells them to remember. But in the very second verse of Deuteronomy, this is what Moses said. Normally, it takes 11 days to journey from Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea. And he's saying, you know, back then when we came out, we were at Mount Sinai and uh, we were told to go to the promised land. And so they went to the promised land, but they got to Kadesh Barnea. That's when they sent the spies in, as you'll recall. And Moses, looking back, says, it only takes 11 days to go from Mount Sinai 
to Kadesh Barnea to go into the land. But you didn't go in. You were disobedient. And you didn't go in. And because of that, you have now wandered for 40 years in the desert. And this morning, that's a word to me. It's a word to all of us that when God tells us to do things, if we're obedient, he manifests himself. But if we're disobedient, then we go our own way. And the children of Israel for 40 years lived in the desert. And so I say to you young people, do be obedient while you're young. I'll tell you why. Because I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, we were in Bible school together. And uh, I'd just been going through Deuteronomy and we were just sharing and I told him about this verse that had just been a blessing to me because I thought it's wonderful to become older and look back and not have regrets because we've endeavoured to be obedient. Oh, well, we didn't get it all right, but we've endeavoured to be obedient and God has manifested himself. That's, that's a great joy. And there was a silence on the other end of the phone and he said, David, I've wasted 40 years. I've wasted them and I ached inside. We need to be obedient so that we don't ache in 40 years' time, you young people. But God will use us and manifest himself and make us a blessing. So let's ask God to help us to be the obedient type who will do what he tells us to do and to see the miracle of water being turned into wine in our families, in our societies, in our church, that we'll be blessed by the miracle, the great sign that he has worked and done his miracle. Let's pray together, shall we? Maybe God has spoken this morning to your heart and maybe you have to honestly say the joy has run out and what Jesus promised in a fulfilling life, you're really not experiencing it. But this morning you would like to enjoy it, you would like to enter into that fulfilling life. Then he simply says to you the words of his mother, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. May God give you the strength and the passionate desire to see him fulfill his plan in your life and in your ministry. If someone this morning has felt that God has spoken to them and that they really would like to enter into that and you would like help, there are folk here I know who would pray for you and I certainly would be delighted to too. May God bless you and use you greatly in this fellowship. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.